Cayman Nature, a journey in search of a peaceful and prosperous society with human nature as a guide. Led by your host, Adam Heyman. Hey everybody, Adam Heyman here. Welcome to Heyman Nature. I'm solo again because this episode is going to be part two of my interview with Stefan Kinsella. Uh, so hopefully you've already listened to part one. Um, let me give you his bio again. Stefan Kinsella is a libertarian writer and patent attorney in Houston, Texas. He has spoken, lectured, and published widely on various areas of libertarian legal theory and on legal topics such as intellectual property law and international law. And continuing this interview, we talk about his most recent book, last year's Legal Foundations of a Free Society, and his mind-blowing uh book that came out in the early 2000s called Against Intellectual Property. So welcome back, and here is part two of my interview with Stefan Kinsella. Um, in the early 2000s, I ran across your book, um, Against Intellectual Property, and I read it in tandem with another book called uh, Against Intellectual Monopoly, I think. And it really, both those books just blew my head apart because I went to college, I took economics classes and they taught me that if you don't have fierce protection of intellectual property, well then gosh darn it, no intellectual property will be produced at all. We'll just be living in mud huts, poking each other with sticks. And then I read your book and you just laid it out to me. If I truly believe in property rights, well gosh darn it, intellectual property is a violation of everything I know about property rights. But I still had the hang-up, which is, I think, why the other book is so important. I still had the hang-up. Well, yeah, okay, maybe it's a violation, but I want stuff. I want inventions. I want music. I want books. And that other companion piece was really great, just a, an empirical um, analysis over the, the centuries of all these cases where plenty of these things were and are produced, and there's no intellectual protection at all. In fact, I'd like to see that book updated because in the digital age, I think it's even more um, it's more obvious the truth that you do not need IP and in fact don't have IP when so many things can easily be pirated and copied and yet people still produce and can make money. I'd love to see that book uh, redone. But anyway, um, why don't you blow the minds of, of my audience in the same way you blew my mind in the early 2000s? Well, and that's a good point. Bolger and Levine, um, who are friends of mine and they're, they're great guys, um, and they're not really libertarians. They're 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 libertarian minded. They're just kind of normal mainstream free market economists. And they started studying this issue. At, at, at if I recall, I don't want to. Um, I can't find the quote on this, but I think they would confirm this. They wanted to do a study of patent and copyright law, and and, and they assumed that it's it's a positive thing. Maybe it needs to be reformed. They assumed it was a positive thing. So they did an empirical study. And in, in researching for their book, they came across so many examples in history and, uh, and economic analyses. They finally concluded, holy crap, <laughs> like everything we've heard about IP in the positive side is bullshit, right? Maybe one or two exceptions from their point of view, but they basically... So they changed their minds in writing the book, which is to their credit, right? They, they were open-minded scientists. Um, now, in their book, they 
in their book, and I think it's 2008, Against Intellectual Monopoly, they make a couple of exceptions. They're not pure libertarian. They say, well, maybe instead of having the patents for pharmaceuticals, the government should fund research, right? So like they're still trying to find a way out of this assumed public choice prop, this this public, um, what's the right word? The public goods problem. Like, yeah, there's a, there will be a there will be an underproduction of certain goods, but they said, well, the patent system's not going to do it, and they're right about that. They said maybe the government should just fund it, but even then they were like cautious. But they were, they, you know, they weren't they weren't radicals. Now in their later works, they're even they're like we shouldn't have any exceptions. This even if there's there's a case one out of ten thousand where the patent system would do something good, it's going to be if once you have it, it's going to be abused. So we just shouldn't have it at all. It's not worth having. So they got more and more radical over time. But you're right that seeing and and this is, by the way, I was going to say, seeing empirical examples to illustrate theory helps people to understand things. And this is what Mises and Rothbard and, and the other Austrians say. Like, the, like they'll point out that, like, well, we have deductive a priori theory, like the Austrian business cycle or the idea that um, uh, economic calculation is not possible under a socialist uh, central planning system. But those are like abstract deductive ideas. But to, to translate it to today's world, like to 2010 or 2008 or 2023 or, or whatever, or to the Great Depression in the U.S. in the 1930s, you need to go from one realm to the other, and you have to make some judgments and assumptions and ceteris paribus things and simplify, and you might make a mistake or you might leave out an important variable. But that's what you have to do if you want to translate it. And so the way Austrians say is that um, when you point to, say, the Great Depression of 19, the 19, late 1920s or the 2008 debacle, and then you use Austrian, say, business cycle theory to analyze it, they say that you're not proving the theory. They say you're illustrating it. Right. So you're giving an empirical case, which helps people to understand, which is which is obviously important. And so I agree that the empirical guys who come up with example after example after example, like Bolton Levine and many other bloggers and commentators, including me to some degree, um, is to help illustrate to highlight. So I had a friend, for example, recently, like I pointed out that that um, like so my argument is more it's not I won't say it's deontological, but it's principle. It's like pointing out that. Ultimately, what we care about is property rights and that patent and copyright, the problem with them, which are the principal forms of intellectual property, okay, patent and copyright, the principal problem with them from a human point of view, from a, a moral point of view, is that they do violate property rights, okay? So that's the problem because they prevent you from using your own property as you see fit. So if someone has a copyright, that means I can't print a book. With my own paper and my own, e I can't print this book. I'll be put in jail or, or 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 killed or fined if I do it. So I can't do it, or I can't make I can't I can't make a competitor that I can't make it a smartphone that's similar to the iPhone because they have a patent on it. So ultimately, and that's obviously unjust. Like it, I should not be prevented from printing a book or saying what I want or giving a speech. Or putting on a play, or saying what what I want, or making a movie of what I want, or or making a device for sale on the free market that I want, unless I'm violating someone's rights, 
this is the fundamental core concept of private property rights in, in the free market and, and the Western pr private property system. The, the problem is uh, people come in and they say, oh, well, yeah, your rights are being limited, but that's because of other rights. So they just invent a new concept of rights, which they call intellectual property rights. But that's just a, a word to disguise the fact that they're violating our property rights with, with, with what I call a negative servitude or a, ne a negative, um, a negative uh, easement. Um, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with negative servitudes or negative easements, which is when one person has the right to stop you from using your resources as you see fit. Nothing wrong with that if you agree to it. If that's you contract what, to it, yeah. That's what that's what homeowners associations are about, restrictive covenants. If I live in a neighborhood, yep. everyone agrees that you can only use your houses for, for, for residential purposes and not for commercial. They've all agreed to that. Nothing wrong with that. Just like sex between a man and a woman is fine if it's consensual. But if the woman doesn't consent, we call it rape. So consent is the key element here. And patent and copyright are basically negative sort of easements that were not consented to by the person who's burdened by them. That's ultimately the problem. So that's the justice part. So you can say, okay, it's unjust. It's unjust. But then you, then you look at the consequences. So what are the consequences of this? Well, injustice always has- Hang on for a second. Uh, before you move on to the consequences, uh, I just yep. want to go back to the theory. One of the insights that really underscored this for me was realizing that property rights are a way to uh, differentiate uh, and allocate the uh, ownership of scarce resources. Correct. And the concept of Harry Potter isn't scarce. We can all hold it all at once at the same time. And if 18 billion more people descended upon the planet, they could all hold it in their mind too. It's not a scarce thing. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a fundamental part of the insight. So in economics that uh, and in political philosophy, the, the concept of scarcity emerged. Um, and it, the word is a little bit ambiguous, which is why I, tr I try to use other terms now like conflictability or something like that or, or, or rivalrousness. Um, the idea is, is that, um, and again, this is why having an Austrian Misesian background helps because the Misesian framework views us as human agents or actors. That is, we're controllers or possessors of a body, which is a physical corporeal thing in the world, living in time in a universe where there's always challenges. And the challenge is we're not omnipotent. Right. We can't control what's going to happen, but we're not totally um, we're not totally incompetent or, in, or or we're not totally helpless or impotent and we're not totally ignorant. We have some awareness of the current environment that we live in and we have some awareness of the, the phenomena of time. That means we know that something just happened and something is coming. That's how we live. We live as as actors slipping through time. And we sense that something is coming. And this is what Mises talks about when he talks about um, um, we feel uh, we feel uh, uh, uneasy mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. our, about our, our vision of what's coming in the, in the near future. Like, I think that here's what the future is that's coming. Like, my stomach is rumbling. I'm getting hungry. So I think that in an hour or two or three or a day. I'm going to be really miserable or maybe I'll die unless I get some food. Okay. So I feel uneasy about this universe is coming. 
So I have to intervene. How do I intervene? I have to control my body to grab things, to grapple with things, to rearrange things, to, to, to manipulate physical things in the world that are causally efficacious. And by when I say that, I mean things that can interfere, they can cause something different to happen. I can change the course of events. So I'm trying to, I see a universe coming. I want this universe to come instead. That's what all human action is, right? This is a little bit philosophical, but I, I, it's not that complicated, to be honest. Everyone understands this intuitively. Of everything course. we do, everything we do is grappling with nature to change what's going to happen. And if you succeed, you've created a new future universe that comes to be than the one that would have come to be. And that's that's called a profit in economics, right? Or a psychic profit or, or a monetary profit. Um but the point is, if you if you orient and you think about your life in this way and what you're doing, you're always trying to intervene in things to make a better thing happen. And now I've lost my course of thought. <laughs> what you well, that's because going? I totally derailed you. But you were about to go on to the consequentialists of, uh, of IP. You know, do we need it? Uh, here's oh, right, right, right. We don't. So the consequences are, yeah, so when we talk about justice, and so I mentioned earlier that, yeah, there's a difference between facts and value norms and facts and is and ought uh but there's it's not like they're not totally related like the when i say that it's unjust for you to violate my rights the only reason i care is because i do have a physical body and i live in the physical world right um and that when you violate my rights it does make a difference to my my plans about the world um so to take it back a level um if you were Robinson, so this is why Mises and Rothbard, I think, talk about they they come up with these uh, hypothetical situations which, which are not real, but they isolate something. So, for example, I believe Rothbard and Mises talk about the ERE, the evenly rotating economy, which is not Roth a Rothbard, possible world. yeah. So it's like this idea of this uh, this world that everything's repeating all the time, and it's a way to analyze interest rates and all this kind of stuff. It could never exist in reality, but it's a way to isolate and ignore some things to do an analysis. Another one is the Crus is the Cru Crusoe scenario, which Rothbard uses in like um, For New Liberty, I believe, or Man Economy. Uh, sorry, Ethics of Liberty. It's the idea of Robinson Crusoe alone on an island, and the the reason that's a good example is number one, it's not impossible. That's that's actually unlike the ERE. That's actually possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. But the reason it's important is because once you have Crusoe by himself on an island, there's no normative aspects. There's no interpersonal stuff. There's no laws. There's no rights. There's only Robinson Crusoe acting. And so pure praxeology. So every moment of his life, Crusoe has to take action, manipulating scarce resources to try to make his life better, to you know catch fish and build a hut and do whatever. When you introduce other people, which we call society, then you have a couple of elements. Number one, your life is better because you have social intercourse with other people and you have the division of labor and you have living in society and we're a social species. And all. So you have that benefit. But the, but, the, but the negative is that when, you, when you're a crusoe on an island, you had possession of a given resource you had no danger. No one was going to take it from you. But now in society, now there's other people who could use the same resource for their own ends. 
So now you have potential conflict over these resources. So when you have society, there's benefits to it, but the danger is that you could have conflict. What's conflict over? Conflict is over things that, that you could have conflict over, which is the things you want to use that are of the nature that they can only be used by one person at a time. Now, an idea or information, as you are alluding to, like if, if I learn how to, to bake bread on, on a fire, or I learn how to kill an animal and take its skin and make 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 clothing out of it, or I learn how to build a log cabin to live in it, those ideas, um, if other people witness that and learn from it, they can imitate that and they can do that and make their own lives better. But those are not things that there can be conflict over because I can build my own log cabin and someone else can build their own log cabin, even though I'm the first guy that thought of it, right? And by the way, no one's ever the first one that thought of anything. So all all all, all inventions are incre uh, incremental anyway, but that's right. not even the point. Yeah. Even if I was the first one that thought of building a log cabin or using fire to cook food to make it tastier or healthier, um, if I do it in public and someone witnesses that and they learn from it, and then they copy that technique in the use of their own resources, they're not violating my property rights because they're not stopping me from doing what I could do. So that's the fundamental insight about the reason that it matters to identify a resource as scarce or not, or as we might call rivalrous or conflictable, something that could be fought over. Um, that's the only subject of property rights. So property rights emerge for the types of things that people can fight over, but not over ideas and information. And in fact, the reason that we're richer now in society is not because we're smarter. I don't think we're smarter. If you've seen the movie, uh, <laughs> Idiocracy. I Idiocracy, mean, the future documentary. Idiocracy. Maybe we're stupid or genetically. I don't know. But the reason we're richer now is because we have more technological recipes and knowledge that the human race can use to better and more efficiently exploit and rearrange the resources of the earth to make our lives better. And that is because ideas spread and we learn them and the better ones get to be spread more and the worse ones get discarded. So this is what makes humans human and makes society livable is because information can spread without boundary. And the idea is that intellectual property, what it attempts to do is take the rules that have to be applied to scarce resources. They have to be applied to them because they're scarce. And that's because there's only one user of a, of a bowl or a farm, or a tractor, or, or a body. And if you don't have a rule, then people fight over it. So we have a rule to say who gets to use it, but there could only be one user. That's just the nature of reality. So for these things, we have scarcity, and property rights try to let us use them in the most peaceful, productive, cooperative way possible. But then you take that rule, which, by the way, so here's the mistake, I think. So People are used to, in the analog physical world of the old days, you know, they're used to the idea that, um, okay, if we follow these basic Lockean property rights rules where the first guy to use an unowned piece of land is the owner, the first guy to, you know, chop down an oak tree in the forest gets to use the, 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 the timber, whatever. Uh, if I have a farm and I have apple trees and they grow apples. Those are the fruits. If I own the tree, I own the fruits. If you follow these basic rules, then 
if everyone else in society roughly follows them, then if you are hardworking and you have intellect and creativity and you have labor, then you tend to be prosperous. So the rule people draw from this is that, ah, that means you have a right to your labor, right? You see what I'm saying? They make a connection between working hard and laboring and success. And so then they start thinking, they make a general empirical um, generalization and they say, well, I have a right to the fruits of my labor. And the reason they say that is because in, a, in an old world free market system, yes, if you work hard on your farm, generally speaking, you produce more crops and you're, you're more wealthy. But it doesn't mean that you have some kind of right. I mean, this is socialistic in a sense, the idea that, hey, if I worked hard, I have a right to get paid. No, you don't. You got to find a customer, buddy. You know what I mean? And so when the world changes and when products become, you know, the, the, the economy becomes more service oriented, more labor oriented, and you, you, you linger on this idea that you own your labor, which is John Locke's mistake, by the way, which I've written about too. I think the fundamental mistake of our thinking is John Locke. So John Locke in the 1600s came up with this, this defense of private property against government predation, which was great, but he was trying to counter the religious ideas and uh, the, the idea that the monarchs are you know, the agents of God and all this stuff. So he basically said, well, everyone owns their body from God. Adam was the first owner of the earth. God gave it to the humans. God gave everyone the ownership of their bodies. And if you own your body, you own your labor. If you own your labor, you own unowned things that you mix with it, blah, blah, blah. So he put that into his argument and everyone went with it because it was a good way to fight off the power of the governments. But they bought into this idea that you own your body means you own your labor. But if you understand that labor, again, as an Austrian or as an economist, labor is just a subset of action. There's two types of action, labor and leisure. Things you do for their own sake is like consumption versus production, consumer goods and producer, producer goods. You do something for its own sake, like enjoyment now and the here and now, or you do it for an intermediate step to achieve something down the road. That's production, right? Or, or, le or, or labor. So labor and leisure. Okay, they're both just types of action. So if you say you own your labor, you might as well say you own your leisure. What, which, what does that even mean? And you might as well go up a step and say you, you own your actions. Well, that's like saying I own the boat and I also own skiing on the, on the, on the, on the lake. I mean, what does that even mean? You, once you own your house, you have the right to take a shower in it. You don't have to say I have the right to take a shower. You have the right to use your house as you see fit, and one of the things you can do with it is take a shower. But you don't have like 17,000 specific rights that are things you can do with the house that you own. So this is what fundamental and clear thinking about property rights leads to. It leads to understanding the true nature of these things and, 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 and debunking a lot of fallacies. Again, the main fallacy here is the idea that if you own your body, you own your labor. Once you believe that, then you will come to believe in IP because you think, well, if I own my labor, I own what I create with my labor. And if I, if I create a farm with my labor and I own the farm because I created it with my labor, 
Well, then if I create a novel or a poem or a mousetrap with my intellect, I own that too. You see, these things follow from the flaw of thinking that we own our labor. We don't own our labor. We don't own our actions. We own our physical resources For based sure. upon these claims. Going back to uh, debunking fallacies, I'd just like to point out that uh, 15 or 20 years since Napster and Pirate Bay destroyed the music and the movie business, they seem to be doing pretty well. Correct. Strictly speaking, everyone in the Western world can get all of these works of art and music for free. They don't. And these artists are still making plenty of money. And, you know, touring is a thing. It's, again, why I think uh, Against Intellectual Monopoly needs to, uh, needs to be rebooted just to show how many more illustrations they are, there are of that principle in the modern age. Yeah, I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, um, well, first of all, Bolger and Levine, they published that book with Cambridge University Press, which is a mainstream publisher. And it is online, actually. And it's online because when they published it in 2008, um, they negotiated with Cambridge. They said, we, you know, we're writing a book attacking copyright. We don't really want to have it paywalled. <laughs> And so they persuaded Cambridge to let them put a free version online. And so I always use the example when I talk to these modern libertarian academics and every time, even in 2023, I'm always disappointed when they have a brand new book with an academic press and it's, it's priced at $175 or something, you know, just sold to libraries. It's a whole scam. And I'm like, why would you spend years of your life writing a book that no one can read. And and they say, well, that's just a system. I'm like, but it's not. I said, Boulder and Levine, they actually try like, so like, did you ask Oxford or Cambridge or whatever academic did you ask them? Hey, could I could I negotiate with you a free online version? No, they don't even try because they're totally clueless academics. Um, I don't gotta get that. That's that's a separate criticism. Very good. Well, Stefan, I've held you far over the time I promised, and I, I cannot thank you again for coming on my little show here and blessing me with your wisdom and insight. I truly appreciate it. I enjoyed it, Adam. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to part two of my interview with Stefan Kinsella. Um, I had a great time. He had a great time, and I sure hope you had a great time and learned something. Hopefully, it blew your mind a little bit. Please hit the like and subscribe buttons. Uh, I'm sorry for asking. It is annoying, but it really, really helps the show. So if you liked it, please indicate such to our Lord, the great algorithm in the sky. And hit the like and subscribe buttons. Thanks. Bye.